Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We'll be discussing deepfakes, the new online safety act and slaps. But first, I want to briefly discuss some of the media law related issues that have arisen as a result of the ongoing conflict in Gaza. First of all, to mention that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, has defied calls for a ban on a pro-Palestinian march through London on Armistice Day, as he's insisted on the independence of his force amid intense government pressure to act. In a statement in which he acknowledged the demands for him to stop Saturday's procession, Rowley insisted there was currently insufficient intelligence that there would be a risk of serious public disorder. He stressed the importance of an independent police service focused simply on the law and the facts in front of them. Despite a chorus of cabinet ministers, including the Home Secretary and Justice Secretary, insisting that the march should not go ahead. Is this pressure from the government on the police against this protest appropriate? I think it's difficult to justify government interference in policing decisions around protests on political matters, particularly sensitive matters, such as the one that uh, the Metropolitan Police are going to be grappling with uh, both on Armistice Day and, I suspect, on a number of days for the foreseeable future. The conflict between the Israeli military and Hamas is not going to end anytime soon. As a result, the humanitarian concerns that are being expressed by those attending protest marches across the United Kingdom and indeed across a number of other countries are going to continue to uh, find expression in similar protests. So this is going to go on for some time. The police have to make judgment calls about when protests may turn dangerous. And it is true that on occasion, protests can turn violent. We've seen it in the past. Um, We've tended to see it, I think, when we've had uh, marches from involving figures on the far right of British politics uh, that have ended up clashing with, say, anti-fascist protesters. Um, so it is possible, and the police are, I think, justified in being wary uh, of large-scale protest marches, as I say, particularly where the subject matter of them is highly sensitive. The risk of violence could well arise, for example, uh, from a counter-protest that might arise in response to the uh, one expressing solidarity with Palestinians. So the police have to think about that. Um, The Metropolitan Police Commissioner has given quite detailed reasoning for his decision at present, and that is at the time of recording, to allow the march to go ahead. Um, And that's based on a lack of specific intelligence indicating uh, a specific risk of disorder. Um, Undoubtedly, there will 
at the protest be some people who will say things that are extremely offensive to, uh, at, at the very least, Israelis, quite possibly to the broader Jewish community, quite possibly to the broader uh, British public. Um, I would certainly find certain things that may be said at a protest offensive. If, for example, there are calls for widespread violence against Jews or Israelis, that would be offensive to me, even though I am neither Jewish nor Israeli, because I would find it offensive as a human being to have that kind of incitement. Um, and I would not be at all surprised if in a protest that is likely to number in the hundreds of thousands, there are some expressions of that sort. You are going statistically to find that at any controversial protest. But the majority of protests that have occurred uh, in the UK relating to Israel-Palestine over the last few weeks have clearly been broadly peaceful. Um, and whilst there have been one or two, probably more than one or two, but we're not talking thousands of uh, offensive placards, for example, uh, brought and slogans shouted, they've not reflected the majority uh, of the things being said or waved at these uh, protests, which, as I say, have been largely concerned with humanitarian uh, issues. I'm concerned when government gets involved in policing decisions of this sort because they ought to be made according to the prescribed legal framework within which policing operates and on the basis of real actionable intelligence um, rather than on uh, rather than being based on what the government would like this week um, and it's quite clear I think anyone who's familiar with this government uh, that it has certain members in its cabinet who are of a very right-wing persuasion and whose views on the uh, highly complex situation historically between uh, uh, Israel and Palestine are not what you might call balanced. So uh, there's me very carefully wording what I'm trying to say about this, but um, the, the thrust of my opinion on this is that we should all be wary of government interference with policing decisions around protests because that doesn't tend to indicate a terribly healthy state of affairs. I think the other problem, of course, from the, the police's perspective is that there is a law that um, prohibits glorification of terrorism. Uh, Hamas as a prescribed group Um it can't be glorified, encouraged directly or indirectly uh, by anyone as part of a protest without breaking the criminal law. So the police do have an obligation to deal with that. But the statement 
as it's been published by Suella Braverman, was not that nuanced and seemed more to be a sort of blanket uh, prescription, almost of any mention of uh, the war or any mention of the individuals involved. I think what this conflict has brought out, of course, amongst the British people is our innate sense of empathy. We care about others, we care about strangers, and we don't want there to be a conflict of any kind. We don't want innocent people to be slaughtered um, for any reason. Um, images of babies, of children being killed by anyone is enough to upset us and incense us and drive us to want to protest. But that empathy can be misplaced in the way that all empathy can be misplaced. And in wanting to be empathetic, um, sometimes we say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And particularly with something like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as Tom's already said, it is so highly complex. It is so difficult to judge from a distance. You know, even for people who are experts in this field, they can't just give a quick summary, a quick narrative or a quick soundbite to try and capture all of the nuances of those issues. Uh, that any kind of protest could be misconstrued, could be um, received unfavourably, certainly could be received provocatively. And that puts the police in a really difficult position in trying to uh, actively manage any kind of protest and deal with innocent bystanders and protect innocent bystanders as well. I should say that, um, because I have heard pushback and criticism from some outlets over the last week or two against the assertion um, that this is a highly complex situation. Um, the pushback that I've heard has been along the lines of it's not remotely complex, lots of people are being killed and the killing needs to stop. Um, yeah. And I will absolutely acknowledge the legitimacy of, of, of that perspective. When I talk about complexity, I don't just mean uh, historical claims over land rights uh, or whatever it might be. Um, I mean that this is emotionally complex. It's complex for people because many of us have friends in the Muslim community, some in Palestinian communities, as well as friends in the Jewish community, uh, quite possibly uh, in, in uh, Israel itself. Um, and for those of us who are trying to navigate this terrain in as humane a fashion as possible, it is uh, certainly emotionally complex trying to get across that terrain in a way that doesn't jeopardize friendships, in a way that doesn't hurt people. Um, and so when we think about the complexity of, of, of the situation. I think we need to 
acknowledge it's not just about historical complexity, political complexity, military complexity. It's also about emotional complexity because this is a messy situation involving people and one that perhaps uniquely uh, in the world, and if not absolutely uniquely, certainly um, it's one of a small number of analogous uh, situations, involves whole communities that feel affinity with those involved in the day-to-day fighting and uh, humanitarian crisis that's unfolding, um, even if those communities are spread across continents. And that's not something we see replicated in too many parts of the world, but it is something that has been true of this particular uh, situation for a great many decades. And the present situation has thrown that into very sharp relief. Absolutely agree with everything you just said there, Tom. Um, The humanitarian concern is not complex. We want an end to fighting all over the world, not just there, and for disagreements to be uh, settled through political dialogue. Another issue that's tapped into that kind of nuance that you've just both been speaking about is the suspended Labour MP, Andy MacDonald, who's announced that he's going to be suing the Conservative MP Chris Clarkson for defamation. Clarkson accused MacDonald of, and I quote, seeking to justify the murderous actions of Hamas in the Israel-Hamas conflict. MacDonald was placed on precautionary suspension on the 30th of October 2023 as a Labour Party spokesman said the comments he made at a pro-Palestinian peace rally included the words between the river and the sea, uh, which were, and I quote again from that Labour Party spokesman, deeply offensive. MacDonald said much of what he he had said at that march over the last few days and weeks about the war in Gaza has been deliberately distorted and misinterpreted. Some pro-Palestinian protesters had chanted, and I quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free during recent demonstrations in London. In his speech at a rally on the 28th of October, MacDonald called for peace in the Israel-Gaza war and in particular for the immediate and comprehensively binding ceasefire. He said, and I quote, we will not rest until we have justice, until all people, Israelis and Palestinians between the river and the sea can live in peaceful liberty. MacDonald said Mr Clarkson's statement had was highly defamatory and caused serious harm to his reputation. He said that he is not prepared to stand by while an MP or others peddle the lie that I have sought to justify the actions of Hamas on the 7th of October 2023, including the awful murder of 1,400 people in Israel. Does MacDonald have a case here? Yes, um, he does. Uh And given what I've said before on this podcast about the uh, situation involving uh, determination of meaning in English libel cases, um, it will come as no surprise to regular listeners uh, when I say that uh, when this ends up in court, assuming that it does, um, this statement by Clarkson accusing MacDonald of seeking to justify the actions of Hamas ought to be treated as an expression of opinion. Um, 
Now, regular listeners will have heard my critique of uh, what happened in the case of uh, Riley and Murray. Um, that was a high court decision from, what was it now, about, about 18 months ago? Um, the indications we get from Riley and Murray is that statements of this sort that purport to interpret somebody else's statement are likely to be treated as assertions of fact. Um, however, for reasons that I have discussed at length on the podcast to do with Riley and Murray, which I won't go through again here, which I've also written about, uh, and it can be, you can, if you, if, if dear listener, you want to read more about this, uh, the Journal of Media Law has an open access uh, essay from me all about Riley and Murray and, and the, the fact opinion distinction in English law. Um, I think that these sorts of statements where the statement purports to interpret an earlier statement by another person ought to be treated as expressions of opinion. That is, Clarkson saying that McDonald said X and I interpret it as being a justification of what Hamas did, that should be treated as a statement of opinion. That doesn't mean that Clarkson is likely to win the case. It means that the defense that he would have to put up is the honest opinion defense. He would have to show that there are some underlying facts that support and provide a basis for uh, an honest person to rationally draw an opinion of the sort that he drew. Um, And MacDonald would no doubt argue vociferously that there are no such facts, because when you look at the precise wording of what he said, the interpretation that um, Clarkson puts upon it is untenable. Uh, And no honest person would come to that view based on what he said. That would be uh, the line that claimant here, MacDonald, would take. And that's the way I think the case ought to play out. Um, But... If the English courts carry on doing things the way that they have been doing them, uh, it will be treated as an assertion of fact. Clarkson will be forced to prove as a matter of fact that uh, MacDonald sought to justify Hamas's actions, and he will fail to do so, and uh, he will lose the case. So he'd be well advised to settle. All right, moving on to the rest of the topics that I wanted to talk about today, starting with the Online Safety Act, which received royal assent on the 26th of October 2023. The Online Safety Act seeks to force tech firms to take more responsibility for the contents on their platforms. We've spoken a lot about it on this podcast in the past because it it is a, a highly controversial piece of legislation. Critics have raised concerns about the implications for privacy. WhatsApp and iMessage are among some of the messaging services to threaten to withdraw their services from the UK as a result of the Act. The new law puts the onus on firms to protect children from some legal but harmful material, with the regulator Ofcom being the extra enforcement powers. It introduces new rules such as requiring pornography sites to stop children viewing content by checking ages. Platforms will also need to show they are committed to removing all illegal content, including child sexual abuse, controlling or coercive behaviour, extreme sexual violence, illegal immigration and people smuggling, promoting or facilitating suicide, 
promoting self-harm, animal cruelty, selling illegal drugs or weapons and terrorism. Other new offences have been created, including cyber flashing, which is the sending of unsolicited sexual imagery online, and the sharing of deepfake pornography, where AI is used to insert someone's likeness into pornographic material. Powers in the acts that could be used to compel messaging services to examine the contents of encrypted messages for child abuse material have proved especially controversial. Wikipedia has also said that it would not be able to obey some of the acts, such as the age verification requirements. While the act is often spoken about as a tool for reigning in big tech, government figures have suggested that more than 20,000 small businesses will also be affected. So now that it's finally here, um, is the Online Safety Act good law? Well, now that it's finally here, I mean, I'll freely admit that it caught me out. I didn't realise it had been given royal assent, which speaks uh, to my ignorance. Um, It's been so long in the making that I didn't actually think this would ever come into force, certainly not in this current parliament with this current government, who... um, we trust won't be here this time next year. Um, It raises, as you say, a series of issues because what we have been given bears so little comparison to what we were promised by Nadine all those years ago with our upstreaming, downstreaming of rackets and sports and everything else that she promised us. So it will take some time think not only for Ofcom to work out what it's all about but for us as well it'd be interesting to see uh, what Ofcom does next um, but I I agree um, with you Colette uh, I think some measures within the act um, are necessary and are called for and hopefully will will work very well others are stranger and feel less well thought out such as age verification for example how on earth is a website to check age verification without um either doing it in a kind of cursory fashion i.e are you 18 yes or no well yes i am okay that's fine um or introducing extra problems through the collation of and the collection of personal data uh, that we would think uh, very, we should all think very carefully before we give it to a website. Um, For example, websites that sell alcohol. Um, And the concerns that that this also raises, I think, um, in terms of for those that are concerned about how their personal data is going to be treated, the impact that can have on uh, the economic interests of those small businesses that you mentioned, will people start thinking, actually, you know what, the risk of someone getting hold of this information and using it for nefarious purposes isn't actually worth me making this transaction. Uh, I won't bother. So uh, that's one uh, aspect of it. And also, of course, the perennial problem of asking messaging services to decrypt certain messages 
no one wants to protect child pornography rings, by the way. Um, yes, we, we would. We, we do want those messages to be intercepted by the police so that they can take action. However, the very real issue of just how uh, a messaging service provider is to do that in a way that only targets child pornography and doesn't capture everything um, and therefore allows um, messages to be to be freely uh, read um, by people that we wouldn't want to be reading uh, pri- private messages. One aspect of that bill is um, the criminalisation of the sharing of deepfake pornography. And that leads on to something else that I want to talk about today, which is Scarlett Johansson's legal action against an AI app that used her name and likeness in an AI generated advertisement without her permission. This is happening over in America. So slightly different law applies. The 22-second advert was posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, and it opened with a behind-the-scenes clip of Johansson from the set of one of her Marvel films. The AI-generated film and voice imitating her then continues speaking to promote the app that was used to generate the deepfake called Lisa AI. The fine print under the advertisement says, and I quote, Images produced by Lisa AI, it has nothing to do with this person. This isn't the first time that Johansson has experienced her image used without consent. And in 2018, she was a victim of a deepfake pornography as well. Um, at that time, she spoke out publicly about the lack of laws to protect victims of deepfake abuse. Now, in this situation, in, as she is in America, she'll probably be going down the image rights path in order to bring her claim. But there is no right to one's own image in the UK. I just wondered if you think that with the technology of deepfakes getting so much better, it's time that the UK courts reconsider that aspect of image rights so that claimants without a commercial claim uh, could also have some sort of protection, even if it's not a pornographic video. I think you make a very good point, Colette, and it's something that does need to be given a great deal more consideration. Um, the rule against a person having a, a right in their own image, a property right in their own image, um, in English law, obviously predates this technology by a very long way. And this technology, I think, poses a real challenge for English law. Um, how can people be protected from the illegitimate creation and dissemination of deepfakes whilst we still protect things like parodies and comedies? Um, Part of Johansson's objection in this case, for example, is that not only is there a digital visual likeness of her produced, but also that there's an imitation of her voice that's produced. Um, But doing imitations of people's voices is something that's been part of our uh, comedy culture in the UK for a very, very long time, and some people are extremely good at it. Um, It's quite possible to do a very convincing impression of a person um, and possibly to time it right with uh, an existing video of them. Um, Now, I'm I'm not trying to draw an equivalence between deepfake pornography and someone doing an impression of Tom Baker, but 
it's the issues around this are really really complex because it's not just to do with the technology the technology itself is mind-blowingly complex um but it's to do with exactly where we draw the line between illegitimately reproducing an image of a person and legitimately doing it um it's perfectly lawful to draw a picture of someone. At what point does the drawing of that picture become illegitimate? How good does it have to be? How graphic does it have to be? Does it have to move? If I draw a stick figure of a person, presumably that's never going to be illegal. But if I draw an extremely convincing, almost photorealistic picture of a person, then that does start to give rise to issues. And this is partly because we haven't ever worked out whether our problems with deep fakes, um, that is our, our ethical problems with them, arise out of the process by which they are created or the use to which they are put. Um, and my thoughts on that currently are uh, uh, not very well developed. And that's partly because it's the subject of ongoing work on my part um, to uh, to think about these things in advance of a... Uh, a, a paper I will, will be giving uh, next summer. Um, but I do think that there are obvious gaps in English law. Uh, the Online Safety Act creates an offence dealing with dissemination of deep fakes uh, where those are pornographic. So it deals with one small part of the gaps. Um, but there are, there are many others and there needs to be a, a lot of thought put into the question of whether any or all of the remaining gaps need to be filled by legal measures. Yeah, so I, I find English law's uh, position on this um, slightly schizophrenic, if I can put it that way. Because on the one hand, if your image is exploited by others for their commercial gain, um, there is a sort of property interest there or, or a quasi-property interest. Um, and, and that, judges seem to say, oh, no, no, that's that's grubby. Uh, we stay away from that. Um, if, though, it was... And, and for me, I, uh, that sort of development of such a reputation that it becomes marketable by others is no different to me producing something through penmanship which the law has no problem in protecting as a matter of copyright either through statute or the common law itself so the common law there has no problem if, if i am the person doing the drawing and the drawing becomes an extension of me because i am walt disney uh, that's absolutely fine um but then if people are sort of trying to exploit uh, the image of an individual like David Beckham in years gone by uh, for their commercial gain when they themselves have done nothing um, but ride on the coattails of someone more successful um, just because it's an image, that seems to be a problem. However, of course, we have the exceptions, the slim exceptions that we find in defamation law with cases like um, the Charleston case that we've talked about previously, but also even 
even if you cast your mind back to cast your mind back, you weren't around then. Uh, I don't think Tolly and Fry, nineteen thirty-one. Tolly and Fry, uh, which is to do with uh, the chocolate manufacturers uh, producing chocolates that contained uh, an image of um, a famous golfer, suggesting or suggestive of his endorsement of a product. Now that's fairly weak as precedents go. But it does show a judicial receptivity to preventing or penalising or compensating, however we want to describe it, uh, for the exploitation of one person's image to the benefit of others. In that, in that case, reputation, which you know I tend to think of reputation as a property right, uh, mainly just to see the look on Tom's face. Kudos for mentioning Tolly and Fry. Thank you. Classic case, always good to go back to early 20th century jurisprudence. Well, also just to say this isn't a modern problem, um, although it's given a modern modern context. The other dimension, of course, is privacy. Now, privacy is not a property interest. I don't care what certain newspapers would have you believe. Privacy is about how other people interact with you. And in that sense, it sort of shares its personality, uh, rights, conception with reputation it is about other people thinking that you are engaging in pornographic uh, material uh, when you're not um, or even if you are Um, but it's it also has a bearing here I think on what um, Scarlett Johansson has been through previously you know Scarlett Johansson as you alluded to Colette um, intimate images of her that she had taken and shared with others um, were obtained illegally through the hacking of the iCloud or some cloud, maybe not the iCloud, a cloud that stored these intimate images. Um, and so I can well believe that there are lots of different things going on within her motivation to address this. One is to draw a line and say, leave me alone. Uh, The other one is uh, more of a financial interest, which is, well, why should you benefit from my reputation to sell your goods when I haven't actually agreed to this? And that is the that second one, of course, is the logic behind the reasoning of Tolly and Fry. You're benefiting from my reputation, which you have no interest in, have done nothing to contribute to. And it's not yours, it's mine. And just on deep fake, pornography i mean that's just horrendous Uh, and you know anyone that goes through that um is just an absolutely appalling thing to do to another human being to put them in that kind of situation and there should be stronger laws the strongest laws to uh to deal with that i think well, as we said, that is a new feature of the Online Safety Act. Um, it, it is only the dissemination of deepfake pornographic material, which I have a lot of thoughts on myself as well. But perhaps we'll save that for another longer episode, another time. And for now, move on to the UK Anti-Slap Coalition campaign, which is a group of media groups that have drawn up a model law, which they once enacted by parliaments, The proposed law would allow judges to dismiss abusive cases early in the process before costs start to mount. 
It would also cap costs and force claimants who bring vexatious suits to pay damages to the defendant. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Civil Procedure Rule 3.4 allows for um, the court to strike out claims for an abusive process and 24.3 allows a court to give summary judgment against a claimant's where it considers that the party has no real prospect of success. <laughs> so what is it that this model law is doing that doesn't already exist in court, standard court procedure? Yeah, absolutely, Colette, absolutely. So my concern with SLAPs is really about how the term is used and the lack of transparent, accessible evidence by which we can gain a more fully rounded sense of the problem itself, the problem that we're trying to address. We know that the term slaps comes from a 1988-1989 series of articles that were written by um, Pring and Kanan in America. One was a lawyer, one was a sociologist. And they were talking about the First Amendment in America. And we know that the First Amendment is to do with free speech. But the First Amendment in America also includes a more explicit public participation clause, which relates to essentially being able to bring grievances to the state or about the state for redress. And so it it was really to do with action groups, public protest, this sort of thing, concerned citizens who were being prevented by big corporate entities from complaining about environmental pollution, for example, and law being used to suppress that. Now, the kind of laws that were being used included defamation, but it was much bigger than that. It was things like conspiracy uh, and, and other types of things. Now, in its modern day incarnation, we seem to be talking only about free speech, which wasn't what the term was invented to address. We seem to be talking mainly about the protection of journalists, as if journalists themselves are concerned only with public participation or mainly about public participation, which is an empirical claim that is largely untested. Um, And so we're sort of missing out on, on the bigger picture of what's going on here. A lot of the cases that tend to be mentioned as well are not strikingly wrong in in the way that they describe uh, the issues. Um, the original slaps referred to cases that were wholly without merit and were abusive in every sense of that word. Well, the kind of cases that get thrown around when we talk about things like Cadwallader and Banks, for example, that wasn't an unmeritorious claim. It was a claim that needed to be dealt with by a court. It involved very complex issues and it extended to pages and pages of judgment. It wasn't something that could be struck out. But the main thing that slaps groups want is for a mechanism that not only does the law already have, but a mechanism really that kicks in before law has even had chance to get its shoes on. 
so so the wrong as it's articulated by anti-slaps organizations is a very tangible wrong and an understandable wrong that relates to not only the financial impact of litigation but the psychological impact of litigation but only in a particular context the context of free speech now anyone that's ever been involved in litigation knows that it's incredibly stressful whether you think your claim or your defence is strong or not. It's a horrible process that extends across years. Years, not months, not weeks, years. So it is draining in every single context, from contract, property, all aspects of tort. So you've got that going on. Why? What makes free speech different to every other kind of litigation? Then you've got the process itself, receiving a letter from a lawyer and this idea that lawyers are doing things that are wrong by writing to protesters or writing to journalists and telling them setting out their client's position and so the other aspect of this slaps debate which is incredibly problematic and which inform has addressed i see uh, through publishing a letter by concerned lawyers is that It's this idea of castigating and vilifying lawyers for doing their jobs. If you think about debt collection agencies, for example, debt collection agencies writing to people who owe money to say, you owe us money. If you do not pay this money, we can take things away from you. You know, that is threatening. That is something that is fear inducing, even when the claim is justified. It is that kind of letter written in those terms is bound to provoke an emotional response. But it doesn't mean that the lawyer has done something wrong by writing or the debt collection agency has done something wrong by writing. And this vilification of lawyers is something we're seeing across all these different contexts, particularly immigration. And I don't like it. It's a culture that is self-serving and it's doubly damaging to our wider public participation community in which lawyers play an incredibly important part. Defence criminal lawyers, for example, are a key part of public participation. Immigration lawyers are a key part of public participation. So we've got all of these different things going on that don't elicit sympathy for the slaps community and the anti-slaps community because we're not able to properly assess the evidence and get a proper handle on where the issue is and what the proper methodology should be. And the final point I'll make on this is one that relates again to methodology It's the pejorative sense of slaps. One of the things that that has sort of made me concerned about the slaps debate is that Dominic Raab was so keen to fight for it. Why was Dominic Raab keen to fight for this? Why are the Tories keen to fight for this? I'm not just trying to be anti-Tory, although I usually am, But any time the Tories jump on something that seems like a very left idea or a liberal idea, 
alarm bells ring in my head. What are they doing trying to protect and deal with liberal measures uh, like this? And so I think with slaps, we need to tread very carefully because, Colette, as you've already said, the law already contains so many measures to address the problem of vexatious litigation and vexatious litigants. Two, the law can only engage when it's called upon. So if someone is receiving threats in circumstances where genuine free speech rights are at stake, then the law needs to be encouraged. Now, I understand why that's very easy for me to say, but the proper response, I think, to these uh, non-meritorious threats is, bring it on, sue me then, let's go to court. Three, I'm worried about the reverse scenario where genuine claimants are threatened by devious parties that if they pursue their genuine claim, the defendant will go after them as a slap measure. And I have here in mind duplicitous newspapers, if such things exist, or even newspapers with a particular agenda that are themselves the powerful entity in this discussion. They themselves are the ones that hold the financial power to be able to drive claimants into the ground. These sorts of defendants don't need extra ammunition in their arsenal. And yet this slaps treatment, this slaps measure that people want to see introduced, if it's not handled properly, could give them that extra weapon in the arsenal um, and so suppress genuine claims. And that is all I want to say. Well, I agree with everything that you've said, Paul. Um, oh, you said boring. <laughs> that's all right. That's not all. Um, you, Colette, you're absolutely right. that The civil procedure rules already give the judiciary plenty of tools to get rid of unmeritorious claims. And a big problem here is that the anti-slap lobby are conceptualizing slaps in a way that doesn't reflect what I think is the proper use of that terminology. If a slap is anything, it is a completely unmeritorious claim that is designed purely to intimidate, and as such is an abusive process. Now, we've already got abusive process rules to deal with cases like that. So what the anti-slap lobby mean by slaps is not just unmeritorious cases, but cases that have some merit, but the anti-slap lobby disagrees with that merit and thinks that the claim should fail. Now that's very different. Um, and I think that that position comes out when you see in the proposal um, the idea to raise the summary judgment threshold, um, the, the, the threshold for surviving summary judgment for a claim, from having a real prospect of success, which it currently is, to in slap cases being a likelihood of success. 
Now, this might seem like a very minor change. And uh, any lay people listening, you might think, real prospect, likelihood, what's the difference there? It's one word. Does it make a difference? It makes a huge difference. Because to determine whether something is likely to succeed or not, that is, whether it is 51% to 49% likely to succeed, requires consideration of the evidence. And to do that, you need a trial. Right. So what you're then proposing is to have some sort of preliminary proceeding at which the evidence is introduced. And the court looks at all of it. You're having two trials, but not for the price of one. You'll pay for both um, the, the, the preliminary hearing and then the trial. So what it ends up doing is turning what ought to be a relatively quick filtering system to get rid of the unmeritorious claims. Does this have a, pro a reasonable prospect of success, a real prospect of success? It doesn't have to mean it's likely to succeed, just is there a colorable claim here? The court can determine that pretty straightforwardly. But to determine likelihood of success, you essentially need to determine success itself. And that requires a trial of the issues. Um, and that means days, if not weeks, of proceedings in court. Um, one of the big worries that the anti-slap lobby and the journalistic class have about litigation is the cost of it. And this I've heard several times, and it's not just things I'm reading, it's people I'm speaking to, events I'm going to. And it comes down to money. That people work for small regional newspapers where the editor doesn't have an unlimited budget for litigation, and so they feel they have to settle claims which they would ideally like to fight because they don't think they can afford to go to court and, the, to, and to end up having to pay uh, their lawyers um, substantial retainers and litigation that lasts for a long time, or indeed the damages that might result if, for whatever reason, the case does not go their way. Um, and that these organizations are getting advice from their lawyers, it's not worth it, just settle, or even better, don't print the article in the first place. And this is what you know, is, is irking uh, journalists. And I, I think I'm being fair in characterizing this as the basis of many of the, the complaints that I'm hearing. And I don't think that these are unmeritorious things to be worried about. I, I think these are legitimate concerns. The cost issue... And litigation in libel is something we've talked about in the podcast before. Libel litigation is inordinately expensive. I think it is ludicrously expensive. I think libel judgments are often massively higher than they ought to be in terms of the damages awards. Some of them, I think, are ludicrous. But there is a mechanism on the statute books by which media organizations could avoid those costs. It's called signing up to a recognized independent press regulator. It's in section 40. It has not been enacted. And it's most For vociferous now. critics and those who are desperately trying to keep it from being enacted so far successfully are the very same people who are yeah. arguing that we need these anti-slap measures. Yeah. If the press would en masse sign up to an independent regulator recognized um, by section 40 they would then be a mechanism by which libel cases privacy cases complaints against their journalism 
could be resolved yep. at a much lower cost. Um, yep. That, to me, seems the obvious way to deal with this problem, insofar as it is a problem, not proposing new procedural laws that are, A, replicating of things we already have. The judges don't think they need more powers. I know, I've spoken to them. And to the extent that they add new powers, such as raising the threshold of summary judgment to uh, likelihood of success, it's completely unworkable um, because you'd need to have vast amounts more satellite litigation that would hugely increase the costs and the time burden on the courts. Um, so it, it just wouldn't function properly in practice. No, or, or the, alter the other alternatives, um, Tom, are that... Uh the all media disputes have to be done by arbitration rather than a court which won't enhance justice in fact it imperils justice which is no disrespect to arbitrators but the, the process of arbitration or mediation or anything like that any kind of conciliation outside of the court is that there isn't the same opportunity for documentation evidence to be considered uh, and the wrong decisions could be reached, which isn't good for justice. Or we start funding legal aid again, and we have a proper legal aid system as we used to before checks notes. The Tories got rid of it. Or we have a, a return to the uplift scheme uh, by which um, conditional fee arrangements could be put into place, which, checking notes again, that got outlawed thanks to complaints by newspapers who, in the aftermath of Campbell, MGN, went to Strasbourg and said these uplift uh, arrangements are outrageous. That started a ball rolling uh, by which the uplift uh, no win, no fee kind of arrangements um, came to an end. Another alternative, of course, is that we have an American system whereby fees come directly from damages. Well, let's do that. But that then increases the range of damages that could be awarded. And that then becomes a game of double jeopardy uh, for the newspapers again. The final thing I want to mention before we finish up today is just that the Conservative Deputy Chair Lee Anderson has apologised to a doctor after he made a misleading social media post about him. The MP for Ashfield said he wanted to offer his sincerest apologies to Dr Tom Dolphin for any distress caused by his post on X, formerly known as Twitter. He has agreed to pay £1,870 to the British Medical Association Strike Fund to compensate the upsets that he has caused. In a tweet, Anderson said, On October the 6th, 2023, I shared a link on X to a Mail Online article entitled Militant Union Leader at the Heart of the Doctor's Strike is a Labour activist who boasted of charging the NHS for a strike cover shift. I continue to quote here. I accept that my words were misleading as the subject in question, Dr. Tom Dolphin, was not on strike that day. And the shift in question was simply covering a shift as a consultant for a junior doctors who were on strike. 
any comments that we want to make on this apology? This is brilliant. Um, this is a really creative bit of uh, claimant lawyering um, in that whilst these, whilst Anderson's apology is written to sound like you know, it's coming from him, uh, he won't be the one who's written this. This has been carefully negotiated between the legal teams because uh, the claimant here uh, had Anderson over a barrel, frankly. Anderson said something that was obviously defamatory um, and for which he had no defence. Um, I also find it very amusing that uh, the amount of money that the claimant demanded in damages was equal to the amount that he earned covering that shift for a colleague and which he had himself donated to the uh, doctor's strike fund. Uh, and that Anderson had to publicly state that he was making this donation, despite the fact he vociferously disagrees with the strikes, to the strike fund to support their strikes because he'd been held over a barrel because um, he put this tweet out. Um, so it, it, it's, it's entertaining. It's also um, an example of libel law doing what it should do and doing it very inexpensively. Right? We've got a person who has said something they shouldn't have said, caught bang to rights. It's cost them uh, nearly £2,000 in settlement, a little bit in legal fees, I should think, on top of that. But we're not talking tens of thousands of pounds here. This will be relatively inexpensive. The apology has been issued, the damages have been paid, and we can all wash our hands of it and be done with it. This is how libel claims ought to be dealt with. Um, and when, you know, it, it, in, in the light of the lengthy discussion we've just had about slaps, and how uh, you know the, the press are so terrified of um, libel claims ruining them. One might think, learn a lesson from this. Uh, if you get something wrong, apologize, correct it, pay a bit in damages, and be done with it. Someone will say I sound flippant saying that. I probably do. I apologize if I do. I don't mean to be flippant. I'm just amused at what's happened to Lee Anderson. Thanks very much, Tom. All right, that finishes up everything that I wanted to talk about today. Thank you very much for your insights, Tom and Paul. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast on X, formerly known as Twitter, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.